Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 33 of the Essential X-Labs, where I'm sure you were all on the edge of your seat, uh, what with uh, wanting to know what old Count Nefaria has planned for the X-Men, and how is he going to steal an entire city from the United States? So, uh... Let's not waste any time here. We got a we got a lot. To, no, we really don't have much to talk about. But let's get into it all the same. This is X Men number twenty three. Had an August nineteen sixty six cover date. The story is called "To Save a City," written by Roy Thomas. Pencils by Werner Roth as Werner Roth. Hey, he's uh he's cool with his name being on the book now. Inks Dick Ayres. Letters Artie Simic. Colors uh, Analog Crayola. Maybe I don't know. Edits Stan Lee. Cover price twelve cents. Now, as mentioned, we pick up right where we left off. The X-Men are captives of Count Nefaria, who is still blathering on about literally stealing Washington, D.C. from the United States and ransoming it back to them. Now, he's certain that the X-Men will play along with this plot because, well, he's going to make it look as though they're part of it, whether they are or not. Now, the X-Men are incredulous. You know, after all, Washington, D.C. is the most heavily guarded city on planet Earth. And Nefaria's all, hey, challenge accepted and he heads back to his little laboratory to get this party started. Oh, and he also gives them one hour to come to their senses and uh, join him and the Magia. Now, before we know it, Washington, D.C. is encased in a dome. So, uh, I guess maybe Brainiac is collecting cities from the Marvel Universe now? Oh, boy, I hope this leads to, uh, you know, like a half-assed nostalgia wank like Convergence. Nah, thankfully, it's, uh, it's nothing that bad. But uh, Washington, D.C. is now cut off from the rest of the United States via this crystalline dome. Now, somewhat amusingly, an airplane narrowly avoids running right into the dome. So, I, I mean, this is one solid pilot they got there. It's like he's barreling towards this thing and then makes, a, makes an on-the-dime turn here. It's pretty crazy. Anyway, inside Washington, people are kind of going cuckoo. And, I mean, that kind of stands to reason. Uh, the emergency services folks try hacking their way through the dome with axes, and, uh, well, it's a no-go. Local construction workers lend their jackhammers, and also, no-go. Oddly, nobody's thought to tunnel out from, like, under the dome. But I suppose then we wouldn't, uh, have the rest of this story, eh, Marvelites? By the way, Roy Thomas really seems to like using the word Marvelite in his captions. We're going to get it many times here. Anyway, from here, Nefaria puts his plans into action without even checking back in with the X-Men to see if they changed their minds. Which seems, you know, a little unfair, I guess. But uh, in any event, he sends phony, illusionary X-Men into the Capitol building to make his demands. Now, if you remember, we saw those fake X-Men flying over Central Park last issue. Well, those were Nefaria's projections. Anyway, these fake X-Men pass on the Count's demands. He wants $100 million. Rather, certificates worth... A hundred million dollars, so I would really like to imagine that Nefaria gets handed like a trillion supermarket coupons, all with a value of one one-hundredth of a penny or something like that. So after giving these demands, the uh, fake X-Men vanish with a gleep, and the folks in the Capitol are worried that Congress will turn this down. Uh, which I guess, same as it ever was, huh? Now back to the dungeon, where we see the real deal X-Men, they're, uh, well, they're still hanging around, pardon the pun. Uh, Jean seems to be the only one who can still access her powers... Though, I mean, Bobby is still in his iced-up form. He should be able to do something, right? Oh, well. Uh, so Jean uses her TK to try and tinker with the cuffs that they're wearing, but it's no use. It looks like Nefaria did his homework on our Merry Mutants, and, uh, well, she wishes there were a way to contact the professor. I, I bet you forgot about him, huh? 
I mean, it's not like this story can end any other way than him swooping in at the last minute to save the day, right? Anybody want to take that bet? I didn't think so. Uh, So, let's shift over to Xavier's lab back at the mansion, where he's in the process of putting together a brand new invention. Now, his concentration is broken by the phone ringing, and it's General Fredericks who's calling to talk to him about the X-Men having gone rogue. And, I mean, this makes perfect sense, right? Professor X, who has absolutely no affiliation with the X-Men and has only met them the one time, it's perfectly logical for a military general to reach out to this creepy bald man who lives alone in a great big mansion for help, right? Huh. Okay, well, Xavier gets off the phone and he attempts to make psychic contact with his charges, but he gets no response. Yet. Back to the dungeon where Scott has a thinking-outside-the-box idea, which is very much of its time because it frames the way his visor works quite differently than it seems to nowadays. You see, he asked Marvel Girl to use her TK not to try to remove the steel band that's wrapped around his face. And I guess, by the way, Cyclops has a steel band wrapped around his face to prevent him from optic blasting. So yeah, Jean is not trying to remove that. Instead, she's going to go under it to open Scott's visor so he can blow the thing off his face himself. And what do you know, that's exactly what happens. Scott then frees himself fully before freeing the rest of his pals. Just then, they get Professor X's psychic call, and, uh, well, they get some instructions to follow. Next thing we know, the X-Men, the real X-Men, are in Nefarious' control room, where they let him know that, you know, they thought it over, and they will join him. After all, humans hate them, so why not try to exact some revenge on them and also get rich in the process? Well, Nefaria, he's, uh, pleased but a bit tentative about this sudden change of heart. Now, he reveals that this crystalline dome over Washington, D.C. can only be dissipated by him and his hands. And if the X-Men double-cross him, he'll just destroy the whole city and everyone in it, so uh, they better not. He then gives the X-Men their marching orders. Now, they're to load in the back of a truck headed to a specific place along the dome, and once there, he will open it just quick enough for them to enter, and of course, they'll close it behind them, and once inside, they'll collect the hundred million. And so, the X-Men are off. Only, they appear to be uh, followed by another innocent-looking truck. Hmm, I wonder who could be inside. Well, we, we don't have to wait too long. It's uh, the Magia Geek Squad here. It's Porcupine, Unicorn, Eel, Scarecrow, and Plant Man. Now, they arrive outside the rim of the dome, where they vow to never do Nefarious bidding again. In fact, they're planning on taking the spoils for themselves. Only, uh, they can't decide which of them will be their new leader. So I, I feel like we read this exact scene anytime bad guys join up, right? Anyway, from here, we shift scenes over to Professor Xavier's arrival outside of Washington, D.C. Now, the general wants some answers as to the X-Men's betrayal, and Xavier is sure they're being framed. Now, the general isn't buying that for even a second. Xavier apologizes and excuses himself to do some more thinking on the matter which is to say he sits there and zones out right in front of everybody so he can project an astral image and get a better look at exactly what's going on here. Which, I mean, for the military guys there, probably looks fairly ridiculous. He's just sitting there, staring into nothing. Anyway, we follow the astral Xavier all the way to Count Nefaria's control room, where our baddie conveniently narrates how he goes about controlling the crystalline dome. And if you remember, the Count is the only one who can do this, so uh, saying this out loud where there's a uh, psychic astral presence in the room is probably not in his best interests. Anyway, Xavier was lucky enough to arrive just in time for the Count to open the dome long enough for the X-Men to enter it. Once inside, we see that they're being watched very closely by both the authorities and the Magia goofballs. 
Now, the X-Men meet up with their contact, who has a briefcase full of large-denomination gold-redeemable certificates. Angel swoops in to collect the bounty. Now, he's spotted by an officer who must have, like, just woken up. He doesn't realize there's a dome over the uh, the city. He doesn't realize what uh, kind of peril Washington, D.C. is in. Because he goes to shoot Angel out of the sky. Uh, only Iceman is there to encase the cop's shooting hand in the ice. Now, the contact who just handed the briefcase out of the X-Men is like, Hey, yo, don't shoot at these guys because they got to do their thing. Otherwise, Washington, D.C. is basically a goner. So from here, the X-Men go to leave town. Only they're met by some angry citizens who take to giving chase while hurling bricks at them. Now, for some reason at this point, Beast runs up the side of the Washington Monument, even though they were just, like, far outside town. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. Maybe they just really wanted this scene in there, just so we're, like, totally clear we're in Washington, D.C., I guess. I I don't know. So we got the X-Men, right? They're being attacked by the civilians, right? So now it's left to the Magia dorks to save them, only in order to protect the loot. So that's exactly what they do. Scarecrow sixes crows on the civvies. Porcupine emits a tear gas, you know, just like a real porcupine would do in this situation. The eel electrocutes them. The unicorn fires off a horn bolt at them. And finally, my favorite and yours, the plant man, sprays the trees with some sort of mist that makes them come to life. So at this point, the X-Men are now safe from the normal folk and have made it back safely outside the dome. It's here that the Unicorn approaches Cyclops to ask for the briefcase, claiming that they'd been sent by Nefaria. Well, Cyclops ain't buying that for a moment, and so it's time for another fight. And uh, I didn't mention this, but on the cover, it did say that this issue was one for the, quote, action lovers. (laughs) And uh, I wonder if this, like, multiple fight scene issue is some sort of response to that one letter hack. We had a few issues back that complained that Stan didn't have enough action in these mags. Uh, You know, Stan was quite reactionary back in the long ago, wasn't he? Anyway, the X-Men and the Magia do battle. Cyclops and the Unicorn's Blast seem to negate one another, which, huh, does that mean that the Unicorn might be the fifth Summers brother? Huh, hmm, that's food for thought. Uh, The porcupine spews a viscous white fluid from his midsection that comes with a sloosh sound effect. Let's not think too hard about that one. Um, Iceman manages to shield Hank before he can get a face full of the uh, sloosh. Um, From here, we get a page of people bobbling the briefcase in nutty ways until it finally winds up in the hands of the unicorn, who then engages his little rocket booty thrusters to fly away. Nefaria is watching this all play out via one of his many, many monitors, and is quite displeased that one of his own Magia goons have dared double-cross him. Back to the Professor, and things have escalated, because he's just being informed by the General that the X-Men are to be shot on sight. They're wanted dead or alive at this point. And, I mean, it's really not hard to see why, right? They are literally helping Count Nefaria to hold Washington, D.C. hostage at this point, aren't they? Anyway, uh, the professor then slump-shouldered says, Hey, I guess you have no more use for me. And, I mean, really, what has Xavier done here other than waste everybody's time and zone out? And so he excuses himself, asking to be wheeled back to his swank motel. I mean, is there such a thing as a swank motel? Like, I could see a place ironically called the swank motel, but I I don't think swank is an actual adjective you use to describe a motel. Oh well, uh, Chuck is wheeled over to the Swank Bank as he claims to be very exhausted from all of his rest. We head back to the X-Men, and for some reason the Unicorn's back. I I thought he'd flown away. I mean, coming back is kind of just asking for trouble, isn't it? Anyway, the army is here, and they're aiming at the baddie, but the X-Men stop them. 
Like, literally, literally, Angel and the Beast attack the soldiers while Iceman ices, ices up a tank's cannon. And remind me of this the next time the X-Men complain that humans fear and hate them purely out of bigotry, right? At this point, Cyclops has somehow gained possession of the briefcase, and he hands it off to Marvel Girl so she could deliver it to Nefaria, which is still part of Xavier's plan, you see? Now, at this point, all the Magiaites, minus the unicorn, load back into their innocent-looking truck, and they flee the scene. Roy, calling us Marvelites for like the fourth time this issue, informs us that these geeks are gone for now. The unicorn watches this play out from some nearby foliage. Now, back at Nefaria's place, he's visited by a strange man with mental powers, who just comes walking in the front door, and he's dressed like Negative Man from the Doom Patrol. Huh, walking in... Huh, walking. I hope that doesn't give the shocking twist away. Uh, just then, Jean arrives as well with all the loot for the Count. Now, while she's handing it over, Negative Man proceeds to click and clack on Nefaria's control deck. Now, Nefaria goes to stop this stranger, but Marvel Girl is able to use her TK to hold him at bay. And she claims to recognize the voice of this strange, standing, walking fellow. Huh. Moments later, the rest of the X-Men arrive, and... By now, Nefaria has somehow managed to flee uh, he, with the briefcase, and he's already boarded his nearby freighter. I don't know how much time was supposed to have elapsed between these two panels, but, uh, okay, <laughs> we'll accept it. Um, now, while Nefaria is on his boat, the unicorn flies off to meet him on the open seas, and this is pretty dumb and it's about to get worse, uh, because Negative Man removes his disguise to reveal himself to be... Any guesses? Professor Charles Francis Xavier. But, 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 but how? How? Well, you all remember that invention he was working on like 10 pages ago, right? Well, this invention was lightweight, flexible metal braces, which allow him to stand and walk for several hours at a time. Very useful invention that uh, I think we'll probably only see like once or twice again, but uh, whatever. Um, now, the X-Men, they're still kind of gobsmacked, however, because... You know, they just aided and abetted in Count Nefaria stealing $100 million from the U.S. government. To which, Xavier cockily lights his pipe and informs the teens that, nah, Nefaria didn't get the money. You see, using Nefaria's own powers against him, Xavier made it so the Count took a mental projection of the briefcase and not the real deal. And so we pop in to find Nefaria and the Unicorn both very, very sad indeed that they got diddly squat out of this caper. Now we wrap up with Xavier handing Jean a letter that arrived for her that morning, and after reading it, with tears in her eyes, Jean informs the team that she must leave the X-Men forever. Our next issue blurb threatens, or promises, a, a battle with the Locust. And it ends with, and if that isn't enough said, Stan doesn't know what is. Stan, I love you, but uh, I think this is a case where we'll have to agree to disagree. So, uh, well, that was the two-part Count Nefaria saga, which, uh, hmm. Last episode I said I hoped I had a lot more to say after reading the second part, and uh, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. This uh, was less than spectacular, wasn't it? Uh, I really don't want to dismiss these issues as being, you know, bad, <laughs> because uh, Roy is still very early in his career, and he's uh, still trying to get his footing with this book, I feel. And it's this odd bit of dissonance between keeping it to the traditional X-Men formula and also trying to expand the X-Men's footprint on the Marvel Universe, right? Here we have the X-Men dealing with non-X-Men villain, which is fun and novel, and it's not, you know, the 
you know, the 10th appearance of Magneto, so that's a good thing as well. But it's still the same old formula, and it's still kind of short-sighted. Now, one of the things I think of when uh, Roy Thomas comes to mind is, like, very tight-knit continuity here. Everything kind of serves something else. This story doesn't feel that way, because, I mean, let's break it down here. The X-Men aided and abetted a villain in holding an entire city hostage. How do they get out of this? Like, do they go to the general and be like, hey, we were just kidding that whole time? I mean, that doesn't change the fact that they attacked soldiers, <laughs> they attacked, they, they endangered civilians, uh, they ruined military equipment. It's, I mean, the mutants are feared and hated. So this, this is a hard one to get out of. At least maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. That is certainly a possibility, maybe a probability, but I don't know. It's hard to walk this one back for me. And also, it's just another case of the X-Men doing all the grunt work and then Xavier sliding in at the very end to, to save the day. Now, looking at this story with more modern or current year eyes, it uh, almost feels like Xavier is purposely not giving them enough rope to just come up short. Like, all the unglamorous work is done, but they can't quite get it over, you know, they can't get past the one-yard line. So Xavier gets the ball and crosses into the end zone, gets all the glory, all the credit, all the kudos, and, uh, I don't know, it seems like uh, maybe that's the way he wants it. He's, uh, very manipulative. I mean, he tells the X-Men to help Nefaria without giving them the reason why, because they were all surprised at the end game. So it's, uh... I don't know, maybe, I don't think we're supposed to be thinking about it that hard, but uh, that's my main takeaway. It's uh, it's just very tiresome having Xavier do this every single time. We really need a change in the formula, and hopefully, hopefully there's one coming soon. But um, really don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about this issue. It was, uh, it was what it was, and uh, I'm glad that we're past it. So uh, we will get ready for the Locust next time for better or for worse, and hope that it's uh, one where the X-Men actually get to be victorious and celebrate a victory? Well, we'll, we'll worry about that next time, but uh, let's leave it there for now, and uh, how about we visit the X-Men in the letters page here. We got James in Ohio to kick things off, and he comments on another letter hack we discussed several issues ago, and this is the one who suggested that readers write into the actual characters and that Stan would have to respond as that character. Now, James thinks this is dumb, and on that we agree. I think this sort of thing only works with Deadpool, because that's, you know, tongue-in-cheek by design. Um, I recall reading an issue of Deadpool not too long ago where somebody wrote a letter in asking where they can find comics online, and Deadpool answered as Deadpool about to give away, like, a scan site, and then, like, the editor had to chime in and, like, redact it. It was, it was pretty funny. It was cute, but... uh. Definitely not something I'd like to see across the board, for sure. Now, James also calls this hack out on having a problem with Stan's gags and no prizes, and uh, how they stated that Stan really doesn't care about the readers. Now, he says that this was one lame-brained letter, and uh, he's not wrong. James loves Marvel Comics, he loves Stan, and he loves the X-Men most of all. Now, Stan thanks James for his kind words, but informs him not to fret about the naysayers, because if everybody loved them, well, then he'd know they were doing something wrong. Next up is Steve Harvey in New York City, and, uh, well, we're going to assume that it's that Steve Harvey, and, uh, no, I'm not going to try to do an impression, because that would be, uh, very unfortunate. Now, uh, Steve is kind of a dick. <laughs> he claims that he's written oodles of letters to Stan, and thus far none of them have gotten published. And so, he's come up with six easy and snarky ways to get your letter published in a Marvel mag. <sighs> You're all ready for this? Um, one... 
write a scientific monograph. You know, in other words, uh, Call stand out for his uh, lack of scientific knowledge. Um, two, join the armed forces and or write to stand from an overseas base. Wow. Um, three, if too young for the military, join the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts because Stan's got a weakness for folks in uniform. I'm telling you, Steve's a dick. Um, four, it gets worse. Get very sick and write Stan from the hospital. Bonus points if you mention how ugly your nurse is. <laughs> he says that Stan might feel so bad he'll gift you a subscription. Five, write a ridiculous joke-filled letter. And I wonder if Steve thinks that this is a joke-filled letter. Six, write a good and sincere letter. And uh, Stan tells him he's wrong on all counts. And even this letter isn't worth printing. And uh, yes, yeah, Steve, you're, you're an asshole. That's, <laughs> that, there's no other way to say it. Next up, Shirley in Texas. Now, she feels that the X-Men have gone from fabulous superheroes to pampered geeks who have to constantly be rescued by outside forces. Also, I'm guessing Shirley's noticed the X-Men formula where they're constantly messing up and then have Professor X save them at the last minute. Well, no, that's actually not what she's referring to. She cites that the stranger had to rescue the X-Men from Magneto twice, and how the mimic only lost because of his father's machine. She then goes on to complain about Captain America being portrayed as an old man, which, I mean, that has tons to do with the X-Men. Uh, she also doesn't like Iron Man and Thor constantly being jobbed out, says that they shouldn't be underdogs like Spider-Man, and, oh, she also doesn't like Spider-Man. A somewhat confused Stan thanks her for the letter and then suggests that maybe she write into Tales of Suspense with some more complaints about the X-Men. Next up, Ken in Massachusetts. Thought X-Men number 19 was great and loved the Mimic. Wants to see the Mimic come back and fight Spider-Man in the Fantastic Four. Also wants to know what Hank McCoy's shoe size is. Stan guesses that the Beast is a size 15. We're, we're, we're going to find out in a few issues what it actually is, so um, look forward to that. Uh, Chuck in Virginia. He loved that X-Men number 19 was a done-in-one issue after the you know previous five were all multi-parters, or actually the previous seven, I believe, were all multi-parters. Thought the Mimic was cool, but a little too much like other Marvel baddies. And he thinks Stan's introductions are a little too much. He thinks it was odd that Jean expressed surprise at enjoying an issue of Monsters Unlimited, suggesting that maybe she's got some bad taste in literature and might even be a fan of brand ugh. Now, Stan puts Chuck on the spot, asking him to name the character who he feels that the mimic is similar to. And I smell a no-prize opportunity, and I'll even send out a fake-ass no-prize on this one. Next up, Gary in Florida. Now, he wants more plot development in the X-Men book, and he is a fan of uh, the multi-part format. He feels like it's a little too episodic, and wonders where they keep getting new planes and helicopters, which is a pretty good question. He wants to know a bit more about our characters, and so, you know, he'd like the stories to continue on a bit to give Stan and the gang room to flesh them out. Now, Gary mocks the naysayers to the multi-part story and suggests that if they want to read three or four lame short stories every issue, well, they can cross the street and patronize Brand Ech. Well, Stan says here that the uh, controversy over the multi-parters has seemed to have died down a little bit of late, and he also sympathizes with any reader who happens to miss a chapter in a continued story. Now, Stan says that, uh, you know, they don't plan whether or not a story will go a single issue or many issues. He says it's basically a case-by-case -case basis decided on what's best for the story as it's being written. Finally, we got Jim in Virginia, who thought X-Men number 19 was great. In fact, he loved all of Marvel's output that month, but uh, I guess he could only afford one stamp, so he's writing in about all of it here. And Stan thanks him very much. 
Those were the letters, my friends. Now, onto the bullpen bulletins, also known as capricious commentaries carefully cooked up to confuse and confound you. Item. Stan took a vacation. Okay, so Stan took a vacation. You might be wondering who filled in for him on the Skate 800 books that he writes a month. Well, Roy Thomas finished up the Submariner and Iron Man stories in Tales to Astonish number 82. Denny O'Neill did the final 13 pages of Daredevil number 18. And Jack Kirby scripted Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Strange Tales number 148. Item. Hipper Marvel readers are giving Stan and the gang credit for the more authentic Greenwich Village that they're seeing in the pages of Doctor Strange. And Stan says that this is due to the post-Ditko artist Bill Everett, who is sharing a pad with Roy Thomas in the village for a little bit. Now, Stan also suggests that Roy and Bill's next-door neighbor might have been the Dread Dormammu. Item! New Marvel sweatshirt alert, so uh, now you don't have to wear your Hulk one 24 hours a day anymore, and uh, well, we'll talk about what that shirt is in just a little bit. Item! King-size specials on the racks. Uh, I guess we're not calling them annuals anymore, at least not for the moment. Uh, now on sale, Millie the Model and Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, of course, 25 cents a pop, to be followed by Thor, Marvel Superheroes, Fantastic Four, and Amazing Spider-Man, also 25 cents a pop. Item, real name reveal. Jay Gavin is actually Werner Roth. Now Stan cites that the Marvel bullpen are becoming so proud of their work that they're totally cool actually signing their real names to it now. So how about that? Item. A couple more radio DJs have joined the ranks of the Merry Marvel Marchers, and uh, I know we all get very excited about radio DJs being part of the MMMS. We got Dick Robinson from uh, WDRC in Hartford, Connecticut, and Spence Allen from WKSN in Jamestown, New York. And WKSN is referred to as Kissin' Radio, so uh, pretty steamy stuff. Item. UC Berkeley have been using Marvel characters on posters for student government elections. So the next time someone tells you that comic characters are never political, then you can, I guess you can cite this, I don't know. Item, Jack Kirby is very busy. He's very, very busy. He's got a lot to do. A lot of stuff on his plate. Too much stuff. He's so busy that he doesn't even realize, like, when real-life earthquakes happen. He's a very, very busy man. He is to comics art what I am to comics podcasting. I am totally blind to just about everything else going on in the real world. The wrap-up. Next issue, Stan will reveal the results of the poll on whether or not he should keep needling brand Ech. Now, he says that that might get at least one person to read these bulletins, and, uh, well, that one person is probably me, but I'll share it all with you as well. How about we hop into the mighty Marvel checklist? We got Fantastic Four number 54, which will feature the Human Torch and the Inhumans. Yeah, two great tastes that go blech together. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I like the Torch, so it's a... Uh, one good, one good thing and one really bad thing. Uh, Spider-Man number 40 wraps up the saga of the Green Goblin. Avengers number 31 is Goliath as never before seen. Daredevil number 19 has the hair-raising return of the Mass Marauder and the final fate of Foggy Nelson. Now, I'm not sure if the Mass Marauder is referring to Daredevil himself or someone altogether different. Anyway, uh, Thor 131 has Thor versus the Space Colonizer, which sounds wildly exciting. Strange Tales 148 has S.H.I.E.L.D. dismissing Nick Fury. Hmm. Also, the origin of the Ancient One in the Doctor Strange strip. Suspense 81, Iron Man vs. Titanium Man. Again. Captain America vs. Red Skull. Again. This time with a Cosmic Cube added in. Astonish 83, Submariner vs. Krang. Probably not that Krang. And General Ross meets with the Hulk. Sergeant Fury number 33, guest starring the... Two-Fisted Skipper, which sounds like a uh, salacious thing you'd have to go behind a curtain to find, but uh, we won't go into that. 
Uh, Fantasy Masterpieces number four features more Golden Age Captain America. Marvel Tales number four, Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man, Human Torch reprints. Marvel's Collector's Item Classics number four, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, Doctor Strange reprints. Uh, the Sergeant Fury 25 Cent Special number two features the Howlers on D-Day. And finally, the Millie the Model 25 Cent Special number five. I'll just read you what Stan wrote. Somebody must like this mag. It sells like hotcakes year after year. A great gift for the gals. Finally, let's check in with the Merry Marvel Marching Society. We got 26 new members, and I mentioned we got a famous name in here. We got Dave Cockrum from Miramar, California. Not sure if it's that Dave Cockrum, but uh, let's assume that it is, just so it feels like we're holding a little piece of history here. Also, we got a new sweatshirt. You know, Stan talked about the new sweatshirt, and uh, this one features the thing shouting its clobbering time on the front, and on the back, it's the thing from behind with his catchphrase written backwards. So kind of like the Hulk one, the here comes the Hulk, there goes the Hulk thing. Uh, and for $3.15 plus a quarter's postage, it's yours. You can have it if you'd like. And they come in two sizes, monstrous youth and gargantuan adult. That does it for the issue here. Let's hop into some shout-outs here, some folks who uh, took the time to uh, click the little icons on the social media shares of this show that uh, really, really mean a lot to me, probably mean too much to me. Let's, uh, let's get some thank yous in here. First on Twitter, I want to thank Mark Jagger, The Long Box Crusade, Neil Alejandre, Dave Schultz, Chris at BTO and Bat Books. Now, next is a handle I've seen a lot, but I've never tried to say his name out loud, so I apologize if I get this wrong. Todd Van Evenhoven. I hope I, I'm close, at least. Uh, Dan Schwent, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, 21st Century Boys, Jesse D. Young, Jeremiah, Zurabi, and Billy D. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jeremiah, Chris Bailey, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Walt Nealon, Billy D., Evan Bevins, and Jesse D. Young. You all make me feel a little less alone, so uh, thank you <laughs> so, so much. Now, if anybody would like to get a hold of me for uh, whatever reason, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook for some fun conversation. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including the complete X-Lapsed archive of programs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available on any podcasting application that uh, you might have on your mobile device. And of course, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show. Let's try to pick up a few more ears in our uh, X-Lapsed journey. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Anyway, uh, with all that said, I want to thank you all so much for spending some time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!